If you have a copy of God's Word, please turn to John. John chapter 19. Finishing up this section of John with Jesus' trial with Pontius Pilate. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you somewhere. You may grab that. Go to page 625, and we would love for you to follow along. It's our custom to preach through passages of the Bible, and you'll find that it's much more beneficial to you to have a Bible open in front of you or maybe your phone or something, and you're able to follow along and look down at the text yourself and see what God's Word has to say. Today I'll be, be reading from John 19, 1 through 16. And if you're there, I please ask you to stand as we honor the reading of the Word of God this morning. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, the king of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man! When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, We have a law that according to that law that he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered, you over, delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the, at the place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, it's been now 20 years since that day uh, that if you were alive back then, you'll never forget Uh, 9-11. Many of you weren't even alive then. Many may be too young to remember, but if you were alive, you know where you were and what you saw and how you felt uh, when you saw what was going on. Uh, I was in one of the towers over here at Cameron. I was a junior, a baseball player. And I had just gotten up, getting ready to go down to kinesiology class and turn the TV on and saw what had taken place. And I didn't know a lot about the world, but what I knew was that it was going to impact my life. And my dad would probably no doubt be deploying soon. My dad had at that time been serving right around 20 years. He would go on to do 28. um, And I knew it would be impacting us in some capacity in that way. But who can really process what they're seeing when they see these things? And little did I know about the way my life would unfold that this event would impact my life in a major way. I couldn't foresee that in only a, uh, a manner of a few, few short years, I myself would be in the Army and deploying, caught up in this conflict that started all those years ago. And this path that I would go down would lead me to a place where I would encounter the problem of evil and suffering become an agnostic and a nihilist, denying uh, the God of the Bible. 
I had no way to process uh, what was seen, and many do not. Um, but many do. Um, Charles Spurgeon famously said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. And I had no such pillow, and many people didn't. And many people today don't have such a pillow, that the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which we lay our head when we go through a trial. In our passage today, Jesus is going through a literal trial, a trial of life, life and death, and he, he possesses such a pillow. We don't see a Jesus frantic or wondering what's going on. Uh, we see a Jesus calm, confident in the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is eventually, you know, the pillow upon which I would find that I can rest my head and I hope you have too, but for many it's not. And texts like these, um, the God of the Bible, I, ha I had no place for him in my life back then. But I, I want to show you in this passage how we encounter a sovereign God in a variety of spheres in this passage. Well, what does this mean? What is the sovereignty of God? And why is it important? Well, the sovereignty of God can be explained briefly as this, that God rules this universe as a king rules over his land. He is free, God is free, and God is able to do whatever he wills with his creation. None can say to God, what have you done? Everything that happens is either caused by God or is indirectly caused by God via his permission. Now, men recoil from that. All right. Man loves to assert freedom. I'm free and able to do whatever I want as an American. No one has a problem with that, right? We love to say that and we love to believe that. What we don't love to believe is that the same is true, magnified a million, billion, trillion fold for God. That God is the most free and the most able being in the universe. And he rules creation sovereignly as creator. Psalm 115 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And there's no buts or exception clause at the end. In Matthew 19, 26, when discussing with his disciples the impossibility of a rich man entering into the kingdom, that it's impossible, they look at Jesus and wonder, Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, With man it is impossible but with God, all things are possible because God is free and able to do anything. Isaiah 43, 13, <clears throat> God says of himself, Henceforth, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work and who can turn it back? No one. God is totally sovereign over this world and over this universe and everything that takes place. And <clears throat> when you understand this truth, as we'll see it, it does become a pillow upon which you're able to lay your head. Now, Unlike the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day, where the fates ruled the destinies of man, the, the cruel fates who were impersonal, uncaring, and cruel and distant, the God of the Bible is personal, caring, near, and kind, and good. So when we speak of God's sovereignty, we can never separate that from His goodness. None of God's attributes can be separated from any other. And so God is good in his sovereignty. So that everything that he does is good. And when we see that, he has decreed all that takes place, large-scale and small-scale things, and that he works all things for his glory and for our good, that is the good of his people. And I think that's seen so clearly in our passage today. And including in that can even be the schemes of wicked men, as we'll see here. Even the cowardice of Pontius Pilate, the evil of the leaders of the Jews that they would seek to crucify Jesus, who is an innocent man. When we understand God's goodness and his sovereignty as he reigns over all of that, then we can understand that God's sovereignty is the pillow upon which we might rest and lay our head. And this is the difference that it makes. This is the difference that this makes because the world is in absolute chaos all around us. I can't think of a time in my life where it's been more chaotic. And we think about just in Afghanistan, the wrapping up of what happened 20 years of that, the mess of that, wrapping that up and how 
the terrible things that have gone on and even the things that are going on right now as the Taliban rules as they've taken over and uh, women and children are abused and Christians are being hunted from house to house, literally hunted so that they might be executed. And even a little closer to home, we talk about what's going on with COVID. I know a year ago, it seemed so distant, really. But now, I can't. I mean, at least 10 people in the last two weeks that I know have died of COVID. And I'm sure if, you, if I were to ask you, you know anyone that's died recently, you would say the same thing. And it seems like everything is totally out of control. And we don't know what's going on. Well, I think narratives like this provide a good reminder to us that God can be trusted, that he's sovereign, and his sovereignty is not divorced from his goodness. And it's a great pillow upon which we can lay your head. And if you already believe that, if you already believe in God's sovereignty, well, maybe this sermon would just be like flipping the pillow over and getting the cool side. Because you've got to get the cool side sometimes. Flip the pillow, rediscover this, and get the cool side. Let's remember the context of where we are. Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken before Caiaphas, the high priest. He's been turned over to Pontius Pilate because they're seeking crucifixion is their goal. Last week we saw blind guides and camels. The text broke down like this, blind guides and camels. We saw that these religious men, they're so devout and they appear so righteous they won't even go into a Gentile's house, right? Because they have to observe the Passover they can't go defile themselves. Meanwhile, they are defiled inwardly. They're full of their whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. It's true what Jesus said of them. They strain a gnat to swallow a camel. They're there <clears throat> to crucify an innocent man. They're blind guides swallowing a camel. We saw, the, we saw the king and kingdoms of the earth where he's Pilate is questioned by Jesus, and Jesus does not deny his kingship, but begins to unpack the nature of Jesus' kingdom, that it's not from this world, and it's from another place. His authority is from another place. And the good news of Christ's kingdom, we saw Jesus in sinners as Jesus takes the place of Barabbas. That's just a visual picture. Like Barabbas can actually say, Jesus died on my cross. That a sinner goes free, and Jesus dies in that man's place. We saw Jesus and sinners. So my purpose today now as we come to this text is the second part of Jesus' interaction with Pontius Pilate, where Pilate again appears to be looking for a way to release Jesus. His conscience is hounding him. He said numerous times already he finds no guilt in him. And so we have Jesus before Pilate again. And as we examine this passage, my purpose is to show you in the second part that God is sovereign over everything that is taking place. He's sovereign over History, he's sovereign over the evil intentions of men, and he's sovereign over salvation of his people. And so this week, there are three parts. We'll see first the king of redemption. The king of redemption. Second, we'll see the son of God. And thirdly, we'll see the slave master of sin. The king of redemption, the son of God, and the slave master of sin. All right. So first, let's see the king of redemption. Look at 19.1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Well, what is happening? Well, what, it, what appears is happening is that Pilate is searching for a way to release Jesus, and he believes that if he flogs him, presents him bloodied and beaten, the Jews will see him as no threat. They'll change their mind and release Jesus. So 19.1. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. They demanded Barabbas instead of Jesus. So his first plan was, well, I'll say, hey, here's two criminals. You say Jesus is a criminal. I find no guilt in him. Here's an actual insurrectionist, Barabbas, a murderer, an actual threat like you say, and they choose Barabbas over Jesus. So Pilate then comes up with this plan apparently to have Jesus beaten and flogged and presented and maybe that will change their mind. Luke records this. Pilate says here at this point, I find no guilt in him. I will therefore punish him and release him. And then they take him away to be flogged. So here in this text, we just simply get this. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, this is no ordinary beating. You have to understand this. This is not just some ordinary beating. right? This is uh, a, a terrible 
cruel form of punishment. I can remember when I was young, I think it was around 1994, there was an American citizen that was in uh, Singapore. And I can't remember exactly what he had done, if he had like spit on the ground bubble gum or something dumb, or if he vandalized some sign, I can't remember what it was. But this American citizen, this I think he was like 18 or 19 years old, was gonna be sentenced with like eight lashings and America, man, they were in an uproar. Like, how can a, can a citizen be given this beating? Well, it was eight lashes with um, bamboo cane. And I remember them talking about it back then. I don't know why I remember this. It's weird, the things you remember, right? And they're thinking, well, they, this is the whip that it causes can actually break the skin, and there can be bleeding. And I have no doubt that it's probably incredibly painful. But even Jesus his beating is not that, right? It's that maybe ratcheted up a thousandfold. Roman soldiers at this point would take Jesus and begin to strike him in the face and beat him and pull his beard and mock him. They would strip him naked, head to toe, and tie him to a pole. And there would, they would take a Roman whip that would be composed of multiple ends, multiple uh, thongs on this end of this whip, and inside that whip would be placed pieces of metal and bone. And then a professional executioner with the force of a Major League Baseball player would swing the whip and strike the, the criminal as he's tied to a pole. And as this struck, it would lacerate the flesh open. Sometimes the beating was so severe, Roman historians record, that internal organs would be showing after this beating. Jesus would be beaten head to toe, flipped over, tied backwards, be struck on the inside part of his body, uh, beaten unrecognizable to where he wouldn't even look like a human being. And many times this would be a form of execution itself. But Pilate had apparently ordered it be stopped from the point of where Jesus would die. And of course, this is one of the reasons why Jesus uh, died relatively quickly on the cross. Sometimes people would hang for days and Jesus only hung for hours before he died. But he was beaten head to toe. He would look like a bloodied pulp, unrecognizable as a human being. And so thinking this would appease the crowd, he presents Jesus to them in this way. Now after he's beaten, if you look back at your text, look at two and three. Soldiers twist together a crown of thorns <clears throat> and they put it on his head, and they arrayed him in a purple robe, and they came up to him saying, Hail the king of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. <clears throat> they weave together a crown of thorns, and these aren't just any thorn like you encounter at your rose bush. These are probably date palm thorns, which would be as long as my hand. As long as my hand. These are incredibly long and sharp and strong thorns. And they wove these thorns into a crown and they cram them on his head. And then they array him in a purple robe, probably a cloak of a soldier. And they begin to mock him and they lay down in front of him and they offer him false worship. They prostrate themselves like he's Caesar and they say, Hail the king of the Jews. <clears throat> and so we can see clearly again how cruel is the human race. How cruel we are. That is not enough to beat a man within an inch of his life, unrecognizable head to toe. They've got to have fun. They've got to have their fun games to play with their victim. It's a view of God removing restraint. When God removes restraint, humanity is capable of grotesque evils. Grotesque evils. And so they mock Jesus after they beat him. And when God removes this restraint, we see them in their cruel game of mocking and fun that they have. Their own creator in front of them. They don't realize it. It's a view of human depravity. We're depraved people, capable of incredibly terrible things in a, in a, in a a read through history, history will reveal this. I don't even need to list the things that are capable when governments go astray and they let soldiers do as they wish. Right? Read through history of World War II to see some of the cruel things that men are capable of. But we see it here in the cruelty of how Jesus is treated 
as subhuman. And you can't escape the reality of, of how depraved we are. I was reminded of that again this week as I, as I looked through um, the comment section. Never read the comment section on Twitter and Facebook, and you'll come face-to-face with the reality of human depravity. And what was up for discussion was how the world would be better off without people with Down syndrome. Of course, you know, the topic was the Texas abortion bill and how, you know, it banned abortions pretty much before six weeks. And you can't detect, you know, a lot of the uh, genetic disabilities at that point. So Down syndrome cannot be detected. And this means that Down syndrome population is going to increase fivefold. And you should have read the comments of what people would say. Society is better off with these people dead. They don't even blush when they say it. They don't have a right to live, of course, because they don't contribute to society. They'll be a burden. It will cost more for them to live. They won't contribute anything. We're totally corrupt and evil and wicked. It's a wonder that God restrains his wrath from us every day. But I see that again here in this text, that the human race is utterly fallen and corrupt. That they go into this mocking. And I was reminded again of Romans 8, 7, which says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And in a way, I see it in this picture, that here is God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, sinless and perfect. They don't recognize him. They beat him, and they begin to mock him. And this is, of course, the why. Why did they take a crown of thorns? They wanted to have their games. From a human perspective, they did it because a crown of thorns, it imitated what would be seen on a Roman coin, a radiant crown that coming off of Caesar's head, the spikes. Have you ever seen a Roman coin? Don't look it up now, but you can Google it later. Caesar had spikes coming off of his head that, that behind him that, were a picture of his greatness and his glory. And so they, from a human perspective, to mock him and their cruelty, weave together a crown of thorns and cram it on his head to make fun of him. But there's a greater why in their cruelty and their weaving of a crown of thorns and placing it upon his head. There's a greater why behind it. And the greater why behind it is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God in guiding human history to unfold in such a manner and the choices of even these men to to, to weave a crown of thorn and place it on Jesus' head, the sovereignty of God guiding history to teach explicit theological truth about who Jesus is. In Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, and plunge the world into darkness and despair and cruelty and pain and evil and wickedness and sickness and death. Adam was a king. He was a king representing the human race, the king of all creation. That's what he was created for. He represented God to the world. And he ruled over all that God had made. And he's a rebellious and fallen king. And his rebellion as king plunged the world into sin and darkness. And as a result of his fall, even the creation itself was cursed by God. And the symbol of that cursing is thorns. Genesis 3, 17 through 18. God says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Thorns and thistles, a sign of the curse. So the Roman soldiers, unknowing to them at all, riding on the providence of God, take the symbol, the sign of the curse, and they make a crown of glory for Jesus out of the sign of the curse. And they cram it on his head. They crown him with glory. Here we see God bringing about sovereignly a great theological, not so subtle at all theological lesson for those who know the Bible, that Jesus is the second and greater Adam that he is the rightful king of all creation. 
And that though the curse was brought through Adam, redemption would come through Christ. That he is the king of redemption, taking the curse upon himself. And it is clearly seen as he proudly wears a crown of thorns. These lessons God has written in history. God has written all throughout history, providentially guiding history to take place as it does to teach us various lessons over and over again in various ways, some subtle, some not so subtle, that all of this, all of this, all of history, all of your Bible is for Jesus. All of history is about him and it's all for him and it's all for his glory and we are to behold him in that glory. Pilate brings him out with a crown of thorns, clothed in a robe, dripping blood, a better symbol of the curse. I cannot imagine in my mind than a marred human, beaten head to toe, bloodied, wearing a crown of thorns. And he says, behold the man. Here is one who is a great threat to Rome, right? That's his hope, as they'll say. This, is, this guy's no threat to Rome. He can barely stand up, and they'll have some type of mercy. That's what Pilate's kind of hoping will happen. But they, there will be no mercy. They have no mercy. Behold the man, right? And you can't, you can't, you can't really miss it. That even in those words that God is sovereign behind them, because that's what God means for everyone, is to behold him, a true man. He's true God, but he's true man, our perfect representative who has taken on every curse of the fall. And he'll redeem it all through his work. And we're meant to behold him as the king of redemption. But the only way this is possible is if God is sovereignly guiding all of human history. Your options are the crown of thorns or an accident, pure chance, or that God has guided everything that has taken place to teach you profound theological truth. And I believe God has guided everything that has taken place, even Jesus' crown. Verse 6, you look, the Jewish leaders, they are not satisfied. They don't behold him for who he is. They demand his crucifixion. And again, Pilate objects, again, I find no guilt in him. He tells them, do it yourselves. Of course they won't. They persist. So this is the king of redemption. Now let's see the son of God. Look back at your text now in verse 7. After he says, I find no guilt in him, the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. Now we get the answer, right? It's kind of not explicitly stated in John's gospel, but they are seeking crucifixion. We talked about it last time. They want Jesus hanging on a tree. Because in their mind, he can't be the Messiah if he's hanging on a tree. Because anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. But the reason they want him crucified is because they think he's blasphemed in calling himself the Son of God. Now, the question is, what would that, would that even be blasphemy? We should ask ourselves that. And really, they couldn't, on those grounds that he's called himself the Son of God, bring any form of blasphemy charge. Not really, right? Because there is a place in the Old Testament, there are places where it can be shown that Israel is identified as the Son of God, and even the kings of Israel are sometimes called the Son of God. So what is it exactly why they are bringing this blasphemy charge. Well, it's coming based off of the law, Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. They can't, in their minds, they can't do that and fulfill their goals. They need him crucified. But it's whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh, whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall be put to death. Now, Simply stating you are the Son of God cannot technically fall into this category. We have to dig further. So if we go back to John chapter 5, we can find the answer there, really, as to what's behind this charge in their mind uh, of Jesus, why he's blaspheming. 
the Jews, if you look in John 5, 18, after Jesus heals on the Sabbath, our text says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So some, something in Jesus' ministry and what he was communicating was something more than he's just the son of God like one of Israel's kings would be. It's that he himself was equal with God. So no one can say today to you, Jesus never claimed to be God. This, this messes up the whole history because this is why they wanted him crucified. Now go back and let's read John 5, 19 through 29 if you have your Bible, so we can see just how clear Jesus made it to them. He can't be misunderstood in the level of authority and equality Jesus is claiming for himself. Jesus claimed this of himself. John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, of, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. So they're equal in work. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all himself that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever He will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Equality of work, of words, of raising the dead, and claiming that he has equality with the Father, that he has given him all judgment. They know explicitly what he's claiming. He is claiming to be equal with Yahweh. And this is, to them, blasphemy. Whoever blasphemes the name of Yahweh shall be put to death. They have no place in their understanding, in their apparent misunderstanding, I would say, of the Old Testament. There is no place for a physical manifestation of Yahweh, of a second person of Yahweh, one who reveals Yahweh and is equal with him. They have no place, but they should. They have no excuse for not. Right? They, have, they have no excuse because... If we go back to the beginning of Israel's history, we can go back to the burning bush in Exodus 3. We can see there that there is one called the angel of the Lord, who initially, as Moses speaks, he's speaking to the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. And then in the very next instance, we see that it is actually Yahweh himself speaking. And it appears to be a mystery. But this mystery is not so mysterious if you continue reading the Old Testament. This angel of the Lord has the name of Yahweh in himself. And he is Yahweh's physical manifestation in the world. In Exodus 14, 19 through 20, for instance, if you go back to this where God's rescuing his people. We read this, Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them to protect them from Egypt's pursuit. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. Right? And then we read in just a few short verses that in the morning watch, Yahweh in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian force and threw the Egyptians into a panic. So Yahweh's in the pillar. The angel of Yahweh is in the pillar. Now Jude makes it clear who's in the pillar. Jude 5 says this, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So who is it that bears the name of Yahweh and reveals Yahweh, the angel of the Lord? In the New Testament, who is it that is the physical manifestation of Yahweh and reveals Yahweh and bears the name of the Lord? It's Jesus. Because Jesus and the angel are the same. But they have no place for this because of their apparent missing of these very important texts. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. 
fully man, fully God, revealing God to his people. Right? John 17, 6, Jesus said it this way. I have manifested your name to the people whom you have given me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Jesus can't blaspheme the name of God because he is the name of God. It's a little rabbit trail I had to go down. I just had to go to see how illegitimate their charge is and how much they missed. But in saying this, when they said that Jesus claims to be the Son of God, Pontius Pilate is now, he said, the text says, even more afraid. Now, why is he afraid? Well, if you read the other Gospels, his wife had a bad dream. It's like a bad omen. And she comes out after dreaming about Jesus. She says, don't have anything to do with this. Don't have anything to do with that man. He doesn't listen. All right, he goes in and questions Jesus, and now he knows he's not guilty. Pilate knows Jesus is not guilty. He finds no guilt in him. He says it over and over, and the text tells us he's seeking to release him. And now he hears that Jesus is the son of, claiming to be the son of God, and great fear comes over him. He becomes even more afraid. Because Pontius Pilate's worldview actually has a place for uh, divine men. He's Greco-Roman, and in their pantheon of gods, their gods would often visit women, and they would have like demigods that would walk the earth. And so he probably has some type of fear that maybe Jesus is one of these godmen. We don't know, but he becomes more afraid. His conscience begins to hound him all the more. My wife said, don't have anything to do with this. And now I see he's not guilty. He's not guilty, you know, but I'm contemplating crucifying him. And now I hear he might be a divine being. So he takes him back in to question him again, right? Kind of a logical thing to do. You think you're about to really mess up? Takes Jesus back in, and there's Jesus arrayed like a king, the rightful king of redemption, bloodied and broken and bleeding out on Pilate's floor. And Pilate is trying to find a way to get out of what he is about to do. So he begins to question Jesus, and Jesus just stands there, and he won't respond. He doesn't say anything. And if you look back at your text, you'll see what Pilate says. Pilate says something to the effect of like, don't you realize I'm in charge? Don't you realize that I have the authority with a word to free you or to crucify you? Don't you realize that I'm in control here, that I'm the power? He's trying to get Jesus to say something, anything, so that he can let him out. And Jesus' answer, well, it really kind of will blow the worldview of a million free will theologians out of the water. And it just might challenge your understanding of the sovereignty of God and how it interacts with human responsibility. But it's here in the text for us to see. Jesus says to him, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus' answer is that God is the one in charge here, God has the authority. He's the one who exercises the sovereignty over this fear of what's about to take place to me. You're not. You only have authority that's been given to you from above to do what has been given to you from above to do. That's Jesus' explanation. That's his answer. That's how he answers this man who thinks he's in control. You're not in control of anything. And then the question may arise, well, does this make him not guilty? And the answer is, of course it doesn't make him not guilty. He's guilty. Well, he will be guilty when he does what he wants. But Jesus says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. That people are acting according to their sinful desires. This is what's happening. People have acted according to their sinful desires. Judas is more guilty because he's turned Jesus over. The leaders of the Jews are more guilty because they know what they're doing. And Pilate will be guilty He doesn't say you're off the hook. But he also says you're not in control here. Now, the the theological term for this is called compatibilism. I'll explain it to you this way. It means that God is sovereign over everything that takes place, even the choices of men, every choice. 
And yet man is responsible for every choice they make because the free agency of man is compatible with the sovereignty of God over creation. Okay, does that make sense? It, doesn't, it means that they are not in contradiction with each other, that God may decree from eternity past what is happening right here, that God is the authority, he's the one in charge, and yet Pilate and Judas and the leaders of the Jews are guilty of sin because nothing, no one has a gun to their head forcing them to do. They are acting according to their own desires. God has not implanted any evil desire into the heart of Pilate or Judas or the leaders of, Jew, of the Jews. They are acting upon that which they want to do. That's compatibilism. And that's exactly what Jesus says to Pilate. You're not in charge here. God is in charge. He's in control. Right? It's a different view. Like Many people view God as like, when things go crazy, as they're going crazy now all around us in history, there are a couple different ways to view it. God, you got God in the corner over there. He's like, oh, things have not gone the way that I planned. You know, he's like kind of wringing his hands. He's this passive kind of weak, impotent God, kind of a pathetic God. I don't know why you would ever even believe in a God like that. Why would you trust a God like that? Why would you pray to a God like that when your life starts to go crazy, right? If you're getting ready to be intubated, why would you pray to that God who's just wringing his hands and things are out of control? Then you got the God that's over here that people believe in today, and they say, well, you know, human Human, uh, humans, you know, they do what they do, but I'm really good at playing chess. So they may do some things, and things may look a little crazy, but I've got the chessboard ready, and I'll react to what man does. I'll react to what they do, and I'll play my pieces, and no one can outplay me. That's another pathetic and weak version of God. But the, the true God, the God that you want to pray to, Right, is the God that's even sovereign over the evil intentions and choices of men. That when they do what they do, they don't do it outside of God's sphere of authority. Now this can clearly be seen in Joseph's brothers as they sell him into slavery. It's clearly seen in, this, in that passage, so clear, right? You know the story, I can't go into the whole story, but years later, after Joseph, he's like the king of the whole earth, you know, leading the earth under Pharaoh's authority, Pharaoh just sits back and Joseph's running the show and the brothers show up and they're afraid because they meant to do him harm. They wanted to murder him at first and then they changed their mind. They said, let's just sell him into slavery. They meant evil, right? And his answer to them, like he, he doesn't retaliate because he has this perspective. You meant this for evil. God meant this for good that many might be saved. Because God rules over the evil intentions of men in his sovereignty, and his sovereignty can never be divorced from his goodness. And that's great news. That's great news for us. And that's what's happening in Jesus' life right now. Jesus isn't afraid because he trusts a God who is sovereign even over the evil intentions of men. Which God would you believe in? Right. Put yourself in Afghanistan, and the choice is deny Christ and save my life or die for Christ. But thank goodness we don't have to make that choice, but when the knock at the door comes, the ones who don't deny Christ, I guarantee you, they don't believe in a God who's playing chess, and they don't believe in a God who's wringing his hands. They know that those men are there and that they will give a witness, a public witness for Christ, and it's an honor to do so. And Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this, that God is in total control of everything that's happening in his life, even the evil intentions of men. And therefore, as Spurgeon said, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which he lays his head. And this is at the heart of the apostles' teaching. If you would think, maybe, maybe you're just connecting too many dots that aren't really there. You have to realize how the apostles preached the gospel, right? And we see it in the book of Acts. Listen to what they say. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. 
as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. These men are responsible for what they do, but they are acting according to God's plan. And this is the God that we should believe in. Right? When history is going as it does, when you don't understand what is going on, I don't know how you can live in a world and not believe in this God. When things appear out of control in your life, you can rest secure in this, that God is still sovereign. You may not know why, right? And that's usually what happens. Why is this happening? Why did they do this? Why this evil and suffering that's come upon me? And you never get the answer. Most of the time, you just don't get the answer. You, maybe in your life 30 years from now you get the answer, or 20 years from now you might get the answer, but at the time it's happening, you don't get the answer. Why? It's natural to ask the question. It's not unnatural. It's a very human thing to do, and it's okay to do. But we don't often get the answer. But we can trust that there is an answer because God's sovereignty is never divorced from his goodness. Never divorced from his goodness. And we trust that God, that everything God does, he is working for the good of his people to bring us into conformity of Jesus Christ. So there's the king of redemption. There's the son of God. Now we see the slave master of sin. The slave master of sin. Pilate goes back outside. And now the exchange between Pilate and the leaders of the Jews one more time. It reveals human nature. They both do. Pilate reveals human nature, and so does so do the Jews. Uh, they reveal the slave master of sin over humankind. I would say the most commonly view, viewed uh, view of sin today, held by the majority of people, is that sin is really like something. Yeah, we know we do, but we've got control of it, right? Like, uh, it, it's not my, it's, it doesn't master me, really. I master it. So sometimes I sin, yeah, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not mastered by it. I'm its master. Um, it's kind of like, it's kind of like this. We're kind of like uh, fully functioning alcoholics. Where I was out in the field here at Fort Sill one time for like two weeks, it was like 110 to 115 for two weeks straight. It's one of the hottest, like, spells of heat we've had here in a while and it's unbearable. Now, one of our map systems go out. We have these electronic map systems in these Humvees. That's an off-road vehicle, if you don't know what it is. And so they have these map, electronic map systems in there, and one goes down, so we call a government contractor to come out. Government contractor comes out. You know, he's out there with us. It's so hot. It's ridiculous. And he always carries around this bottle of water, and I interacted with him over a couple of days. He always had this bottle of water with him everywhere he went. I'm like, ah, that's smart because, you know, you've got to have water on you at all times. And then one day he left his bottle of water in one of the Humvees. So first sergeant comes over to me with it. He's like, check this out. He screws the cap off. He's like, smell it. This big bottle of water was pure vodka, pure vodka. This man is functioning as a normal human being in 115 degree heat, and he's drinking vodka instead of water, right? And I guarantee you he thought he was in control of it. He's a fully functioning alcoholic. That is what sin is to us, right? We are so overwhelmingly controlled by sin, we fooled ourselves into thinking we just function and we're in control of it. We're, we're like that. Jesus said in John 8, 34, truly, truly, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And this is who we are outside of Christ, right? We don't have control of this. Sin masters us. And Pilate pictures that for us. Pilate is a man who is under the slave master of sin, but it's his own sin. We'll see. And so are the Jews. Three times, right, in this passage so far, Jesus, or Pilate has said of Jesus, I find no guilt in him. And we've been told he's been seeking now all the more to have him released. Right? Pilate is being hounded by his conscience. Jesus is not guilty. 
In fact, he could be divine. I don't, I, he, you know, he's like, I don't know. I don't know what to do. His conscience is screaming, let him go. So he goes back out one more time. He's not guilty. I'm going to let him go. But then comes the big time pressure. And they hit Pilate where he is most open to be hit. They play the trump card on Pilate. They throw it down. And they say this, if you look back at your text, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Now, this term Caesar's friend had become kind of an unofficial title at this time. So if you have the name Caesar's friend, that means you are one who is known to be in total allegiance to the empire, total allegiance to Caesar, and that you're even favored by Caesar himself. Caesar's friend, a coveted title. And if you remember Pontius Pilate, this man is... Uh, he is, has unbridled selfish ambition. Remember, he entered the Roman ranks uh, in Spain, apparently worked his way up, married the daughter of one of the emperors for political reasons to advance himself, and he keeps advancing, and here he is. He's the governor of Judea, and he wants to continue to advance. It's the one thing he loves more than anything else is self-advancement. And so they hit him. They hit him right where they know it'll hurt the most. If you release this man, you're no friend of Caesar, right? How can you release a man? He's claiming to be king. So we're going to get word back to Caesar. You released a man who said he's the king, the rightful king, and he's a threat to Caesar. And from history, we know that uh, Caesar would not take that lightly. At the very least, Pilate would have been punished severely and lost everything. In all likelihood, he would have lost his life. So now Pilate has a choice. He's been confronted with the reality of Jesus, right? Jesus has even testified to him. He's given a good witness to him publicly of who he is, that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not guilty. He knows it, and his conscience hounds him. And now the choice is, do I do what is the right thing to do, what is right and just, and release an innocent man... Or do I kill an innocent man to save myself? And we know what he does. We know what he does because Pilate is a slave to sin, right? It's totally enslaved him. And the way it's enslaved him, it might not be the way that it's enslaved you if you're here today and you're not a Christian, but it's his unbridled selfish ambition. And he can't, he can't free himself of it. No matter what he does, he's got to protect that even if it means he kills an innocent man. Sin is a cruel slave master. So about the sixth hour, he takes him out to the stone pavement. It's a place of judgment, and he hands him over to be crucified. But now we see the Jews, the leader of the Jews. They're enslaved to sin as well. This is one of the saddest statements in your whole Bible, if you look back at your Bible. He takes him back outside. Behold your king. They cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest representing the nation, what he says is mind-blowing. We have no king but Caesar. If there is an end of the nation of Israel, that might have been it. Right. You think back to uh, like, and you think back to church history, you know how God had worked even even through the uh, the Roman Catholic Church. You know, people think, hey, when did the Roman Catholic Church like stop being the real church? And I think it was probably at the Council in response to Martin Luther, right, where they decreed publicly, if anyone says that you are justified by faith alone, they are anathema. That was probably, in my mind, the end of the Catholic Church. Like Until then, you know, like Luther, he's trying to reform it. Calvin trying to reform the church, not end it. When that came out, like, bam, it's over. You just anathematized yourself. In my mind, this is that level of a statement. The chief, the chief priest of Israel, acting on Israel's behalf, says, we have no king but Caesar. Now, if you know the history of your Bible then you know that the king of Israel is Yahweh himself. This was God's design, that he is their king. 
right? We often think about King David and the kingly line. Yes, that was God's appeasement of the people, but originally we know that God's plan was for Israel to be ruled by Yahweh as a collection of unified tribes under Yahweh's kingship. And so you can see in Judges as Gideon and his small army delivers Israel, what do they do? They try to make him king. What does he say? No way. I, I'm not, I can't be king. Yahweh's our king. And then you fast forward, right? Um, God is speaking to the prophet Samuel. The people are demanding a king. Give us a king to rule over us like the nations. Prophet's all upset. He's depressed. And he's like, God says, don't take it as rejection of you. They've rejected me. So God appeases. He gives them a king. Now, King David and his line are legitimate kings. But what we need to remember from Israel's history is they rule. The kings rule as vice regents under God's kingship as God's representative, in so long as they are faithful to the covenant, they represent God to the people. But Yahweh is still the king of Israel. And David's kings, his kingly line is to rule until David's son appears, right? David's son, who is both David's son and his Lord. Remember, that's how Jesus stumped the Pharisees before. How can he be David's son and his Lord? He's speaking about himself, Jesus, as the rightful king. And so here is... You have to picture in your mind, this cannot be missed. Again, it's not an accident, the way this unfolds. The rightful king of Israel is here. Behold your king is a true statement in more ways than one. The king of, he's the king in David's line, but he's Yahweh. Do you see that he's Yahweh in the flesh, standing with them? And they say, we have no king but Caesar. Maybe one of the saddest statements in the Bible. But it shows us again how sin is a slave master, right? That these leaders of the Jews, they too, uh, they're seeking their own self-preservation. They don't want to lose their place, their people, their influence, right? When they are face-to-face with the perfect revelation of God, who Jesus Christ is, that they say this. And the statement should be taken is as we reject Yahweh as our king. Because that's what it is. Showing us the cruel slave master that sin is. Now what does this have to do with the sovereignty of God? Only the sovereignty of God can rescue someone from this level of entrapment and and slavery. That sin has so thoroughly entangled the human race. This is what we see in Pilate. This is what we see in the leaders of the Jews who saw his miracles. Right, That only the sovereignty of God and the grace of God, a grace that is stronger than all of our sin, can free us from this type of sin. Because what we don't want to do is look at this passage and go, oh, well, that's Pilate and that's the Jews. Because if not for the grace of God and given a different alternate universe, you could be Pontius Pilate. There's nothing special about Pilate. He's just a human. There's nothing specially bad about these Jews. They're simply humans enslaved and entrapped to sin. Right? And so if not for the sovereignty of God, that is where everyone stays. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin. But Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you want to see their enslavement, we have just a minute. It may be good for you to see what they're really enslaved to. John 5, 36 through 40, through 44, you don't have to turn there. I'll I'll just tell it to you this way. Jesus says this, How can you believe in me? Because you love the glory that comes from man, and that's what you seek. So what he's saying is you are busy honoring each other and seeking the glory that comes from man. That's what you love, and so you can't believe in me. That's what he tells them. Right? And it shows us, again, the cruelty that the slave master of sin is. That guess, Unless God were to act directly upon the human heart, 
this is where we stay. Rejecting God, rejecting his revelation, not choosing Christ despite evidence, despite clear evidence. That's why grace is a rescue. Grace is a rescue from the cruel slave master of sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free. Now, everyone that encounters Jesus is faced with this type of choice that we see with really with Pilate, even and with these Jews. Right? Do I die to the slave master of sin? Do I die to myself and the things of this world? And everyone knows instinctively what it is for them. Right? As the gospel goes forth, as the gospel is preached, and the invitation to come to Christ, repent and believe the gospel goes forth, you don't even have to like know. Like You instinctively know. If I am to follow Christ, then this thing has to die. Right? For Pilate, it's uh, his unbridled ambition. For those Jews, it's seeking glory that comes from one another. And it's something different for you. Right? And we all instinctively know it, and we begin to count the cost. Jesus says, count the cost. Everyone has got to count the cost to be my disciple. Repent and believe the gospel is what Jesus says. And as we count the cost, many people, they look at their lives and they say, I can't give up my life to follow Christ. That's the natural thing that happens. And, and when we hear the gospel, that's where we go. Yeah, that might be true. I've even had people say that. Yeah, I believe that's true, but I can't give this up. And repenting isn't a work. We need to remember that. When Jesus calls us to repent, he's not telling you, hey, get really good and I'll accept you. He's just saying, give this up. Give up your life. Give up whatever you're doing and, and turn and follow me. Right? If, if, if sin is like digging your own grave, when Jesus comes to you and says, stop digging your own grave, put the shovel down, turn around and I'll raise you up out of the grave and give you eternal life, stopping digging is not doing a work. It's just stopping the course you're on. Right? So when Jesus comes to a person and they hear the gospel, like whether that person is, let's say, a young heterosexual male who loves living in lust and having lots of women, or that person is a homosexual, or whoever it is, someone who maybe there's another that has greed and, and seeks after power, when you're confronted with Jesus and he says, count the cost and come follow me, you know what he's, he's asking. He's asking you to die to yourself. It might cost you your whole identity, right? It might cost you everything. And if God were to leave it there, if he were to leave it there, none of us would believe. We do what Pilate does. We do what these Jews do because we love sin. But thank goodness that God is sovereign. He's sovereign over even salvation. Because I never would have come to him. I never would have come to him on my own. Even after hearing the gospel many times, hundreds, I've heard the, I heard the gospel hundreds of times, and I would never come. I'd never lay down my life to follow him. Maybe you were in the same place. You counted the cost, and you counted your life more important than him. And that's where we'd stay. But God is infinitely gracious, and he's even sovereign over the choices of his people, even to repent and believe the gospel. It's a grace that's greater than all our sin. It's a grace that overcomes the slave master of sin. This pictures for me here, in a way, what John told us in the prologue. That they've encountered this great revelation of God, and they won't believe. Look at John 1, 9 through 13. And it just reminds me that God's sovereignty is over all of history. God's sovereignty extends even over the evil intentions of men. And God was sovereign even over my conversion and yours. It was by his grace alone that I came. Look at John 1.9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you're a Christian here today, you were born of God, not of your own will, not of your own works, not of your own effort, but of the sovereignty of God. 
And that's great news. He's the king of redemption, the son of God, the slave master of sin. And we see that God is sovereign over history as it unfolds. We see that God is sovereign over the evil intentions of men and even over salvation. I can see all of that in my life, just in my life. Because when 9-11 happened, very soon after, I would be deployed as well. And I would return having encountered the problem of evil, denying that God existed, a nihilist, thinking there's no point in life at all. But I'll tell you what I also learned over there. I also truly began to understand who I was as a person, right? As someone who was also depraved. We don't think about ourselves that way naturally. And God, through his grace and mercy, didn't leave me there. Right? I heard the gospel again eventually. And, the, and it was like a bolt of lightning. It hit me. That I'm, I am a sinner. That there is a holy God. He's just and right to condemn me. To judge me. To throw me into hell if he wants. I've done nothing but rebel against him my whole life. Taken all of his grace and mercy for granted my whole life. And I was struck in that instance of hearing the gospel one more time by his grace of my infinite need of Christ. And by his grace, I believe the gospel. And had 9-11 not happened, uh, I wouldn't be preaching here today. I don't know where I'd be, or what I'd be doing. Probably be a terrible husband, terrible father, mean as ever. Um, but God was sovereign over all of history. And I was reminded of that again uh, this week through the things that have been occurring and in this passage. That God, his sovereignty can't be divorced from his goodness. We don't get the answers to why things are going on the way that they're going on. Um, but when we look at our passage, this truth is undeniable. The goodness of God is manifested in this passage. God is in control. History is playing out for the greatest good that God would ever do for humanity that Pilate would turn Jesus over to be crucified. And he would die for our sins. He would die for my sins. He would die for your sins. He would die taking the wages of sin, which is death. And he would raise to life victorious, eternal. And he would offer eternal life to anyone who would come to him. And if you're here today and you aren't a Christian, I would just plead with you today to know that you're not here by accident, that God guided your path here. He's sovereign all over even the steps you took this morning bringing you here. And I would plead with you today to not delay another day, but to simply come to Christ by faith. I hope you will. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Help us to, to marvel at your goodness. That you have worked all things for our greatest good, which is to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ to receive forgiveness, to be adopted as sons and daughters into your family. What a great privilege and honor. And help us to know and to rest as we, as we look at the world and we see a world in chaos and we see people, our friends and family, their lives, they don't, they don't know what to make of anything that's going on, the stress, the depression, anxiety, God, help us to see that in your sovereignty we have a great pillow upon which we can lay our head and rest easy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.